Welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Jan Orman. In this podcast series, we've invited people we know and admire to tell you their stories. My name's Paula Kotovich. So my name is Craig Sample. Evie Rader. Molly Shorthouse. My name's Percy Knight. I was a career detective in the New South Wales Police Force. I identify as a trans woman. I am a remote doctor in East Arnhem Land. These are people who may not have made the headlines, but whose stories are just as worthy of your attention as those you hear about in the media. Living with cancer. I was struggling with PTSD for eight or nine years. I just had a lot of fear. I was well and truly burnt out. These are people who have flourished and met life's challenges while managing their social and emotional well-being. Uh, my career now uh, is as a mental health advocate and educator. I led a team that negotiated a $22 million native title. It definitely taught me in my life a lot of persistence and gave me a lot of strength. We're hoping you'll find something in these stories to inspire you, whatever your situation right now. Anne Riches is a bit of a hero of mine. Her association with the Black Dog Institute arose from her own personal experience of depression. Her volunteering in that role is typical of her. Years ago, Anne was made an official legend by the Cantu Foundation for being a champion fundraiser in their ocean swims. She's had a fascinating career, a career that has flourished in the midst of a battle with severe recurrent depression. She'll tell you that she's not special, but really, her story is an inspiring one for anyone who has experienced depression or who knows someone who has. So my name is Anne Riches. I started my life as a lawyer and had a fairly peripatetic career, which took me from teaching law, to practising law as a barrister, to being in-house counsel, to introducing judicial education, to ultimately being a human resources director in two very significant organisations, to eventually setting up my own company, which is a leadership company where we develop and train and advise leaders at all levels in all organisations. Uh, my role at the Black Dog Institute is as a workplace facilitator. I was their first volunteer community presenter, which I'm very proud of. Uh, but now I focus primarily on the workplace and I do a huge range of programs here from um, mental health is everybody's business through to resilience, through to audit tools, through to even training others in, in presentation skills. Outside of work, um, my passions are twofold. They both involve um, extreme sports, I suppose, which for my age is rather ridiculous. But I'm a scuba diver and um, my passion under the water is looking for things like great whites and hammerheads. Uh, and yet the tiniest little thing like a juvenile rock mover, which is only about two centimetres long, can have me shrieking underwater with joy. So we're just about to go and dive in the Galapagos, which will be pretty amazing. But at the other end of it, I also like walking. Uh, I like hiking and I like doing it alone. So I'm in the process of trying to do as many ma major pilgrimages all around the world. So this year I just completed the Kamano Kodo, which is one of only two World Heritage listed pilgrimages, the other one being the Camino. 
But the Kamano Kodo in Japan, not so many people do because it is hard. The hardest physical thing I have ever done in my life. So next year's walk is in Iceland, walking over glaciers, but I'll probably do another one in Japan before then. So how did I become interested in mental health? I'm not sure that I became interested in mental health in that I became aware of mental health issues as a very, very young child in that I grew up in a household uh, which was very difficult. Um, my father was a very abusive alcoholic man. Uh, my mother spent most of her time defending herself. And from the earliest age I can remember, probably about 10, I carried a knife in my pocket at my mother's instruction so that we could protect ourselves from my father's violent tantrums. Uh, I didn't know that it was mental health then. I mean, in those days, and I'm going back, um, 60 odd years. Uh, in those days, we knew my father was ill and we knew that he saw a psychiatrist, but we didn't know what that meant. In my family, there appears to be a genetic disposition to mental health challenges. Indeed, I have just discovered that in, in 1881, in the census in the UK, there was a woman um, who was recognised for census purpose as an imbecile, and her name was Anne Riches. Uh, all through my family, there are mental health issues. I can point to my mother's numerous attempts to take her own life. I can look to my father's quite extraordinary episodes, which I still do not know how one would label them. Uh, my family have in it uh, autism, um, anxiety, depression, attention deficit disorder, um, personality disorders. So it is all the way through my family. So I suppose genetically I was a sitting duck. There wasn't much chance I was going to avoid it. My first, now that I know what's going, now that I have a language around it, I think my first episode was probably when I was about 15 and I was studying for O-levels in the United Kingdom and it was a mock O-level exam and apparently in a maths trial I ended up as a blothering idiot on the floor, crying, sobbing, unbelievably distraught. The way they treated that is a story all of its own, but that, no doubt for me, was my first experience of some kind of episode. And, and then when I migrated to Australia, I'm not conscious of any other episodes or times in my life where I can say that I experienced depression or anxiety until probably around 1996 when uh, that marvellous job that I was talking about running human resources for this global merchant bank and in, something happened, and I do know what happened, but something happened, I wasn't able to deal with it. And for three months, I know that I sank into a depression. And I quit the job, rather thinking that it was the job job's fault rather than mine. Uh, and it wasn't my fault, it's just that nobody had any language or ability to say to me, it's not the job, Anne, it's you. 
So that was probably the first time I became aware of something happening to me, but still no treatment, still no awareness of what it was. Uh, subsequently, my husband and I moved to Canberra for a period of time, uh, and and that mood did not dissipate. So it went on for years, in fact, and in the end, such that I was sent back to Sydney uh, from Canberra. My husband stayed in Canberra. It was all right. Our relationship was still intact. He commuted for all that for 13 years, in fact. But I lost my soul was the way we described it when I lived in Canberra for three years. Coming back to the city, I got well, but still had no concept of what it was I was experiencing. There was, as I said, this no language around it. And then around uh, 2006, 2007, Something else happened. Again, I'm pretty clear about what the trigger was. And there was no question that I had to go to a doctor at that point. And that was the first time the word depression was ever used. And from that moment, my enlightenment, if you like, um, began. And I wasn't afraid of it at all. I was quite, as many people are, I think, relieved to have an understanding of what was going on. And... Once I became aware of it, something happened for me to enable me to set about doing something about it. And so the importance of the language was to enable me to start a journey of recognition and repair recovery, if you like. And what we know from the neuroscience, and I use a lot of neuroscience in my work with leaders, what we know from the neuroscience is if you can get it up into a language, into a prefrontal cortex, as opposed to just, you know, without having that language, then you can start thinking about it. And that's why it's become so important to me, because now I can think about it and be aware of it and can label what is happening to me, not label me, but label what is happening to me and therefore take some steps to deal with it. Uh, and since then, um, I've had a few more episodes, and I can honestly say that I now live with depression. It, it's not that I'm always depressed, far from it. But when I speak with, for example, one of the things I do for Black Dog is I lecture to the final year psychiatry students at the University of New South Wales and the med students there. And when I say to them that I live with depression, it's rather I live with depression in the same way that people live with diabetes or live with cancer or live with bronchitis. In other words, it's always there. It's just that I've learned ways to manage it and to recognise when it might be coming on now and, and what I need to do about it. So that's kind of my journey. So the actual knowledge of mental health is fairly recent. It's only about 20% of my 100% life that I've become aware of it. I initially uh, was that very first episode when I went to the doctor for the first time. I was put on antidepressants and it was a circuit breaker. It was necessary. For me, antidepressants and me don't work. I don't like the side effects of them at all. And even though we tried many, I still don't like that feeling of ultra numb. It doesn't work for me. And so I weaned myself off them at the first available opportunity. But that did mean that I had to find some other ways to manage it. And so my research and, of course, ultimately my work with um, 
Black Dog Institute, and I am a researcher. I mean, I'm a lawyer. I can't help it. I'm not good at superficial stuff. I like to dig deep. And so it became very clear to me that the one thing I could do was exercise. I always have. I've always swum all my life. I've always run all my life and always had. But it wasn't, it appeared that had I not been running as much as I had and swimming as much as I had, then maybe I would have actually experienced more mental health episodes sooner. I mean, that's the realisation I have now. But it meant that I have had to keep doing that. So I'm very clear. And one of the reasons my passions for scuba diving, hiking, endless training for all those things is, of course, about exercise. The challenge is that the more you do, the more you have to do to get the benefits for it because your maintenance levels just are, you know, they, you need to be them. They need to be higher the whole time. Another thing that's really critical for me is uh, sleep. And that's my biggest challenge. It's almost like, and I think many people would relate to this, it's almost like I feel okay to go to bed and I feel sleepy and then the moment my my head pits, hits the pillow, the little voices start talking to me about all the things I have to think about the next day and the day after that and the day after that. And so I have the list by the bed. Uh, I, you know, I use earplugs every night. That's a signal to my brain that I can't hear anything outside. This is about going to sleep. I use um, breathing exercises to try and go to sleep. But sleep is a big issue for me. And my Fitbit is my sort of um, companion in arms in managing my mood in that it measures, it helps me understand why if I'm feeling off, I can just look at my sleep stats and see straight away that I'm not getting enough quality sleep. And in fact, in fact, it's quite interesting because my husband, who is the most remarkable person on this earth in terms of coming on this journey with me, because he knew nothing about this and would have been part of that, oh, just get over it brigade as a guy growing up and has never experienced this in his life. So he's had to come on this journey with me. But he will sometimes say to me, let's have a look at your sleep pattern and we can see why these things would be happening. In terms of support around me, I have my GP who is remarkable. And if I even in passing mention I'm feeling a bit down, she'll say to me, are you handling it or do you want me to assist you? And I say, no, I think I can handle it. And she'll say, if you can't, you know I'm here. That is a remarkable backstop to have. It's always there. The only real support I have around me is my husband in the sense that all of my family are still in the UK. I'm the only one here. But he is exceptional in that he has been open and prepared to come on this journey of learning with me. And one of the remarkable things that I learned by being with Black Dog was for a number of years, I ran the REACH program, which was a nine-week program where I had people who were living with bipolar and depression, and we were basically teaching them life skills. So it wasn't a support group. But one of the modules in all of that was building your network. And as part of that, there was a component that said, uh, if during a time when you are not depressed and not um, unwell, if you can, build a language with someone you trust so that if they see symptoms before you do, 
you've got a safe language in which you can in, in, speak with each other and and sort of help someone's awareness at that moment. So I told this to my husband and I said, that is a remarkable piece of advice, which I don't think is well um, given. It's not given enough. I give it out whenever I can. But we sat down and we we said, well, okay, what is it about me that he notices that I might not notice? I've become really good at noticing, but there is, again, just because of my immersion in Black Dog. But there are times, I'm sure, when I don't see it in my Fitbit, I don't look at or I refuse to look at because I don't want to see what I'm going to, I know I'm going to see. And he says that he sees it as me becoming irritable, monosyllabic, withdrawn, which he would sum up as edgy. And that became our trigger word and that, well, not a trigger word, that became our safe word. And because I'm a lawyer, if I sort of socially contract with him that he can say that word without me biting his head off, (laughs) then I have to take notice of it. And so very, very rarely will he say something like, what's happening on your sleep at the moment? I see you becoming a little edgy. And I know I can't answer back. I've still got enough sort of legal contractual obligation that I have to actually recognise, uh-oh, he's seeing something that I can't. And the, I honour his, his courage to say that so much that if I haven't already started to take steps, almost immediately the first thing I'll do as soon as I hear that is put my walking shoes on and go for a walk. And so, so that's, he, he is an amazing support. And then I've got some really quirky things which no research has been done about yet, but one day they will. I mean, one of the best things for me when I'm feeling edgy, that's our word in our household for it, when I'm feeling edgy, is I love scan noir with subtitles, very black Scandinavian crime series. As long as they're dark, complex, very miserable and require great concentration, and I can binge watch them, I find them a remarkable way of dealing with my mood. My own uninformed (laughs) suggestion for why that's working is because I have to be in my prefrontal cortex. I have to be thinking about that. I cannot be thinking about anything else. But I am an absolute addict of dark, subtitled Scandinavian crime series. If you want to know the best ones at the moment, I can tell you, I watch them all. So they would be that. Um, if uh, In very recent years, and this is only very recent years, I've occasionally had anxiety as part of my life. It's not a big part of my life, but it has occasionally been part of my life. And for that, I use breathing. And my Fitbit comes into its own. Uh, it's got a breathing uh, mode on it, two minutes of that, and I'm good. Uh, or if it's longer term, then I just up my exercise and try and do more sleep or go back to my scan <laughs> uh, But yes, that's how I handle it. So I, I, I am not a fan of medication for me, uh, but I understand why it might be necessary for others. Mental health resources. Well, I suppose we've been talking about my fitness watch. That that in itself is an e-mental health uh, activity. What my Fitbit tells me that 
I don't usually remember clearly is how many times I wake up during the night. So I wake up a lot during the night. And if I can get through the night with only having woken up twice, that is awesome. And if I can get, for example, five hours unbroken sleep, I'm I'm a different person. But I could actually sleep in bed for 10 hours, but if I've been awake five, six, seven times, then it's not helping me. But I need that consistently. So one night is not good. It has to be consistently. Uh, I have looked at a number and I recommend them to a number of people to have a look at. Calm is very good uh, for me. Smiling Mind, Buddhify. Headgear, black dog zone headgear, I like. Uh, I, I sort of was part of the pilot for my compass and I found that was quite useful, but I've, I've not had to go back and use my compass, but I wouldn't sort of shy away from recommending it and I do recommend it. And I think that um, uh, there are so many apps coming on all the time. Some of I think you have to find, again, the right one for you. So there are some out there that I've used to try and help me sleep and I find them so irritating and so annoying that they keep me awake longer. I mean, Stephen Fry trying to read to me a novel which is meant to put me to sleep. I just want to hear Stephen Fry's voice. It doesn't work. You know? <laughs> I like Stephen Fry's voice. Uh, and I also, you know, there used to be meditation apps where they'd finish with a bell or something at the end. Well, if you're trying to go to sleep, this isn't very help helpful. <laughs> Uh, meditation, mindfulness apps, uh, I find I find them less helpful because mindfulness is not something I want to do. It's not something that works for me in terms of concentrating on my breath. For me, it's more about concentrating on something external. So hence my walking or um, uh, just even, as I say to people, just notice the feel of a cup as you're washing it up or stand up and just walk around your chair and have a look at it. I, I, it's the activity nature of it that works for me in terms of mindfulness. So the many of the mindfulness apps that concentrate on breathing aren't for me, but they work for other people. Um, I'm the uh, founding director of a company called The Riches Group, and we are a boutique leadership development company. What is leadership development? For me, leadership development can take a place at many, many levels in an organisation, and perhaps it's better now to even talk about it as leadership skills, uh, or even influencing skills, because I think we've, we're moving away from the notion of we all do what the leader says, to we all go with the leader if the leader influences us more to be on board. Uh, so what it is for me is I'm particularly interested in transformation and how it's beyond people management skills. It's, it's having got the people management skills in place, which is the fundamentals, uh, which we do, of course, and then saying, well, now that we have that in place, how do I encourage, influence, navigate people to come with me on this journey of, of transformation into the digital age? It's a job that comes, I suppose, now relatively naturally to me. And, and for me, the synchronicity between working with Black Dog in the workplace and doing this role is really important because in my, in my work in the Riches Group, the people who are 
in trying to bring others with them onto the into this brand new world for many people, not for young people, but the majority of the workforce is still people who are finding this brand new world quite traumatic and and difficult and uncertain more than anything else. I think we're pretty cha- I think humans are pretty resilient to change, but it's we want some control over it and there's very little control these days. We don't know where it's going to go. But in order to develop that trust and develop that relationship so that people can come with you on that, being conscious of their mental health is critical. And for me, this is the missing piece. It's a, a, a really significant part of what's missing in many leadership and workplace repertoires that they have only ever thought of mental health, if they've ever thought of mental health, in a stigmatised way where it is something to be dealt with and treated and marginalised. And working with the Black Dog Institute and in with my with my own company, my mission is that no one gets harmed in the process of moving into the digital age. But that doesn't just mean physical harm. And I think organisations and workplaces are well and truly over the physical safety precautions that are necessary but they're just starting to understand that mental safety is essential. But we have a long journey to normalise that. So for me, the, the, my, my work in my company and my work in Black Dog just are so congruent because they work side by side. What do I think of, mean of workplace mental health? I think it's a very strange title, actually, because I don't know how workplace mental health differs from workplace health. For me, it's all part and parcel of the same thing. But if we have to break it out, and as a lawyer, I'm used to breaking things out into little pieces so that I can deal with them step by step. If we have to break out what does mental health mean in the workplace, it means being mindful of creating an environment where people can talk about mental health issues in the same way as they would talk about physical health issues. It also requires building up the confidence of employees to be able to say no. This is something that isn't actually talked about a lot. But for me, and I work with leaders in my other role uh, on this, is recognising where boundaries and limits are. I think in this age, those limits have been pushed to the extreme. And part of mental health is also, for me, courage. It's the courage to actually understand what your own limits are, what your own boundaries are, and how to uh, manage not just staying well by not getting a cold or a flu or taking your medication for diabetes or, you know, going for whatever treatment you need to have, but it's also about saying, I need to have a break mentally to recharge it's there is a certain amount of capacity there that I have I've used it for this week I actually need 50 I need half a day walking in the bush to actually regenerate so for me mental health is just part of a whole it's not separate there's no reason for it to be separate there is no separation between our brains minds and our bodies so for me good mental health in a workplace is having people who run the organisations aware, not just of all the things that contribute to a physically safe workplace, but being across all the research and understanding of all the things that make up a safe, mentally safe 
workplace as well. And we know from the work that Sam Harvey and others have done that that's a multitude of things. And it could be from the way a job is structured to the way that uh, change is implemented to the relationships that we develop and have with our staff, any number of things that contribute to a safe, mentally safe place for people to work. In general terms, what can workplaces do to uh, improve their workplace mental health? I'd go right back to the beginning and look at who you actually put in positions of responsibility for looking after other people. I would look at how we appoint and promote to leadership and managerial positions. To date, technical skills have been the prerequisite, or it seems that people with technical skills, once they've reached a certain level, get promoted up and suddenly they've got responsibility for people. And that includes people's mental health when they may have had no exposure to managing people or dealing with people. And I might say for many of them, no interest in doing that either. So one of the most important things I think we can do is to say this. One, choose people who are interested in looking after the whole of a person to get the best out of them, not just looking at productivity results, but looking at what is involved in creating the environment so someone can fulfil their potential. And I think we should be selecting on that basis. And it may well be that there are people who have the potential to be like that, but they can't do it straight away, so prepare them. So send them out and get them trained in looking at how you get the best out of people, including managing their mental health. And then once we get those people in the right places, we can also look at the whole of the culture of the organisation. But the culture is, is only a manifestation of the people and the policies and the procedures and the practices. So we need to delve deep into the organisation and see how does an organisation, for example, deal with people who make mistakes? Or how does an organisation deal with people who say, I'm not feeling so great today, I just need a, a day off? Because if the policies and the pr processes and the procedures don't also support the opportunity for people to make mistakes um, and not be penalised for it. In other words, the next performance review doesn't say, well, you really stuffed that up, didn't you? It's, in other words, culturally, our performance management system, our leadership system says, wow, you didn't get that one right, but boy, did you build on that afterwards and look what happened next. It, it, so it's a whole of organisation approach. And my concern about what's happening with mental health education at the moment is that people see it as just another box to tick as opposed to recognising that it's a whole of organisation approach in the same way that physical safety, if someone is tired, if someone hasn't been trained, if somebody isn't in the right state to be able to do the work safely, uh, for example, people on night shift, endlessly on night shift. Uh, they are never going to, we know, physically ever be as 
accurate and safe as someone who's getting decent sleep because of circadian rhythms. So we have to look far beyond just exposing people to mental health education. That's one component of it. But we do need organisations to look at all the components of an organisation, which is, of course, what um, Professor Sam Harvey and other people are doing, looking at all of the components that make up an organisation, not just training around mental health. That's just one component in the whole step. So what motivates me to talk about um, mental health and to do have the wonderful relationship I have with Black Dog Institute? It is a passion for making sure that people don't have to wait to be the age I was to have a language and knowledge around this. The more I learn, the more I can apply to myself, the more well I can be, the more I can assist others. I want this area, and I can reflect then back onto my childhood and recognise that if we had understood that my father was suffering from a mental um, condition and if people had not stigmatised the whole family because my father had a mental health condition, then we might all have been able to move on a lot more rapidly. I've moved on. My family, many of them are still stuck in a stigmatised world and not getting the health that they, the help that they need. I want to change that. I want mental health to be as part of our everyday as having a cold or having the flu. Thank you for listening. If there's been anything in this podcast that you've found distressing, don't forget to talk to your usual support person or call Lifeline on 131114. And if you'd like to hear more in the Being Well podcast series, you can find it on the Black Dog Institute website. <laughs>